Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening and, if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director, and Liz Mock, Assistant Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the host of the Reinvention Collaborative. Today's guest is Dr. Colin Potts, Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where Dr. Potts oversees offices and programs affecting undergraduate education, including the Center for Career Discovery and Development, the Honors Program, the Center for Academic Enrichment, Center for Academic Success, and the Center for Serve, Learn, Sustain, and where he sits on the President's Cabinet, as well as represents Georgia Tech's undergraduate academic affairs to the University System of Georgia Board of Regents, the Association of American Universities, AAU, and indeed serves as the Reinvention Collaborative President. Welcome, Colin. Hello. Welcome. Good to see you. We have an exciting topic to discuss today essentially the role of the research university and the research part of the research university in thinking about undergraduate education. I think when many people think about Georgia Tech specifically, they think, you know, oh, all the undergraduates there are required to take calculus. And uh, that comes up during football games. I've seen it. And they may also think of Georgia Tech's innovative partnerships with business and industry like those computer science master's degrees that received so much attention. And mentioning football, of course, there's the rambling wreck. Gotta, gotta give kudos to that. <laughs> but what they don't think of, I'm pretty sure, is of an institution whose considerable faculty and staff expertise is marshaled in an effort to make Georgia Tech itself better. A university, if you will, by and for its faculty and staff and students, as well as for the larger community, society and global partners. But with COVID, this basic setup, this traditional setup and self-understanding, this discipline and partner and funding agency, external outward facing orientation may be changing. Can we talk about how the research and research university broadly understood may be used to strengthen universities themselves, particularly their undergraduate programs? Yeah, it's actually, so, hi, hi Stephen. This is great to be here. Uh, it's a really interesting question because, of course, we're in strange times. And this summer, which is when many researchers go away to conferences normally and conduct research in their labs to wow their professional colleagues across the globe, there was a, a big shift in attention. And being a, being a science and technology-dominated university, we didn't really ask people to do this, but many researchers from different fields kind of stepped up and altered what they were doing and, and I think marshaled some student teams as well to do research in a number of areas. So we, we allocated, you know, we have, a deci- we have a decision to make, obviously, when, because of social distancing. How many classes are we going to offer in person? Do we have the rooms for them? What's their new capacity going to be? So things just were like working out seating plans and calculating optimal seating arrangements using, you know, geometrical packing models and things like this was actually something that a couple of our industrial engineering faculty took on and they were immensely helpful in that respect. 
we have some leading epidemiologists who've been fantastic in really optimizing our testing and contact tracing strategies. We have biologists who actually stood up a surveillance testing facility, which is you know, basically for asymptomatic individuals to just get regularly tested that gives a 24-hour turnaround on, uh, on test results. And if, uh, if some clarification is needed, we have a clear certified lab where we can actually do diagnostic testing, which would lead to a definitive diagnosis. And so all of that's really been done internally by people who have that, in, that expertise. And it's really shone a light on something that I think is really important that we've been doing since before COVID and actually as I think you know, and most people know, we have a, have a new president, Angel Cabrera. And so we've been going through, in his first year of his tenure, we've been going through a strategic planning process. And one of the, I think, subtexts of the strategic plan, it's not really called out as an explicit goal, I don't think, but it sort of runs throughout, is the idea of Georgia Tech being, uh, well, this actually is a, a goal. Um, I was going to say that there's a, there's a theme of being an anchor institution. And kind of directing our intellectual efforts, whether it's research or community engagement or what it is to the community outside ourselves but not just the world at large but where we are you know Atlanta Georgia but within campus it's to essentially be a be essentially example to ourselves you know can we can we actually apply to ourselves the, some of the scholarship the learning the research that's going on on campus so one of the big topics that's really animated a lot of our uh, student success efforts over the past five years has been an interest in sustainability which is something that many students care very passionately about and uh, during that period we have had built on campus a living building a zero emissions building it's very very impressive and it has all kinds of features in it that are you could just sort of say as a demonstration you know like a kind of a this is kind of, kind of three-dimensional billboard, isn't Georgia Tech great? But it's, it's actually a real building we use for all kinds of purposes. And it's a sort of site of research into sustainability. So we're feeding back into ourselves, you know, what we're learning. I will give you one example of that. In the middle of the building is a rather unobtrusive architectural feature. It's a, it's a ramp that goes up from the front door and it kind of runs up to the the building is built on a slope so it goes up to the, the the roof or goes down to the rooms rooms at the back and it's specifically designed for uh, uh, those in wheelchairs but it's fairly unobtrusive and it means that disabled people can enter in the front door they're not like forced to go around the back by the uh, by the garbage bins and you know have to ask to be let in specially and everybody can use this and it's not doesn't call attention to itself for what it is it's it's really just a design feature so a lot of the thinking from our you know, our, our research units in accommodations, those kinds of things have been applied in that building too. And there are other examples, you know, like most universities, we've had some, uh, we've had some disclosures of personal information on the web. These things happen, you know, and we have to be very, very careful because of all the regulations about privacy. And we have, you know, world leaders in the area of cybersecurity. What, what, what better thing to do than to ask them to sort of lead a, a group to say well how can we get our act together a little bit better so that these things don't happen in the future and we can respond to them with greater alacrity you know so those are the kinds of things we're trying to do and I'm sure we're not alone in that but I think it's a very important aspect of the modern university because I'm sure you Steve and I 
not alone in having colleagues on the faculty who complain about administrators and the administration, you know, making decisions without getting them involved. This is a way of getting, I think, scholars involved in the actual lifeblood of the institution they, where they live and work, you know, that, that, that they can actually apply their know-how to make it a better place. And uh, that's greatly appreciated, I think. Could I quickly follow up on one point you made there, Colin? It, it, you, you mentioned the anchor institution concept and you know you gave some examples of faculty from different areas of the institution making contributions is there and the, but you also mentioned the strategic plan and president Cabrera's desire to kind of formulate a, an overarching vision for how the institution is developing are any of those things you mentioned explicitly understood within this emerging framework or the, is it more that you know, things are kind of coming up organically and different because of COVID, you know, because of longer term interest in sustainability. And then it's gelling together and you see an opportunity to have it inform the strategic plan, yeah. which, I, I, which I comes first. Yeah, well, I think it's an element of, element of both. As we're working on a strategic plan, obviously that is very much, you know, front and center. Last strategic plan, which I also worked on was 10 years ago, and between its publication and where we are today, we had the whole evolution of distance learning through MOOCs, which people have largely kind of, I won't say forgotten, but it's, it's not regarded as the centrally important thing that some people thought it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't really thought about at all in the old strategic plan. I mean, you have to adjust to circumstances as they, as they change. You can't always predict what's going to happen. But the, I think the conditions for you to respond kind of there already in, in, in the research and practices that people engage in. And we, you know, so when we set out on our strategic plan last year, obviously we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. And so you, you adjust, I think, using the values that are important to, you know, adapt to the situation that's happening. I'll give you some examples of how like the biological sciences and some engineering and management areas have, have actually been applied to a situation we're in. I'm sure we could, we could do a lot more on that in the future. I'll give you one example where I think improvement is necessary and this is I think true in most universities. We have one of the world leading groups on human computer interaction. And when, when I, as I did this morning, site, you know, logged in to uh, make a, uh, approve some, leave requests from from uh, employees and make one myself i i kind of couldn't help but think that i was using a 1990s era in internet interface you know and 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 so there's a mismatch i think between the expertise that exists on campus and the infrastructure sometimes that uh, that we that we use but we're working on it So maybe we could touch on research in various modalities and in various broad epistemological domains. On the one hand, we know that Boyer's 1990s scholarship reconsidered parsed things in an interesting way, distinguishing basic research from synthetic scholarship and these from the scholarship of engagement in teaching and learning. Only the last has really caught on. Do you see this model as germane for our topic? Uh, yeah, it's a really great question and it's quite pertinent. And it, 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 the Boyer, the first Boyer report in 1991 had a big impact actually on me and on my personal career. The founding dean of the College of Computing, which is where my faculty home is, Peter Freeman, I don't know whether he just had a few copies of this where he gave it to everybody, but he gave me a copy of Scholarship Reconsidered and I was very taken 
because I had written a paper actually only a year before, or magazine article really, arguing that in software engineering, which was my field, we should think of the we should do we should think of research or practice as our laboratory. We shouldn't like develop techniques and then tell the rest of the world that they should use what we're doing. We should actually be deeply embedded in, in, in applied work. And that might seem uncontroversial today, but in, in what was then a very theoretically dominated field, that, was, that did actually make some waves. And what I liked about Boyer's rather sort of transgressive arguments, because they sort of, I think, sort of poked a little bit of academic pomposity in the eyes, but if, by saying that, you know, the scholarship of discovery is a very valid and very important form of research i mean you know look at things like relativity theory quantum theory you know some of the great sort of gems of uh, 20th century scholarship and, and, and it's undeniable but it can also i think sometimes most people aren't einstein or niels bohr most people most people are me you know doing really good research uh, impressing their small coterie of 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 uh, research colleagues internationally you know getting invited to give talks and having papers received and 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 this isn't this is legitimate i mean breakthroughs can be made but but very few people i think are, are going to really change the world we're going to incrementally improve an area and sometimes it might be that our our work really doesn't lead to great breakthroughs we don't know in advance that's why we do research we want to find out we're curious but it, but but sometimes we can have a bigger impact through teaching and learning or through integrating the ideas of others in a very novel way which i think sometimes many faculty think you're not entitled to do until you're a full professor and you've paid your dues but i think the sort of sometimes the naive uh, slightly askew insights of someone who's relatively new in a field can really shine a light on how ideas can be related that have never been seen as connected before and that kind of thoughtful review article or synthesis work can be very very valuable and uh, you know you shouldn't I, I believe very strongly you shouldn't turn your nose up and say well it's not original enough and and that goes I think definitely for uh, the scholarship of applications where uh, Universities, I think, really need to play an active role in, in bringing, I mean, our, our uh, we talk, touched on the strategic plan already, I mean, I don't want to sound like a, the manager in a Dilbert cartoon by emphasizing strategic plan. It's a tool to an end. It's a way of thinking about the future and what it is that, that matters. You know, great universities should stand for something. And one of the things I think that we, you know, we have to stand for is that uh, in science and technology, which is so important at, at, at Georgia Tech and engineering and computing, has to be in the service of the human condition, somehow making lives better for people. I mean, it's not just about developing neat gadgets that we think are cool. Very few people actually believe that or say that, but, but I mean, really concentrating on the, 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 the social benefits and the societal consequences of what we're doing, I think is, is really, really vital. And sometimes I think in very narrow disciplinary fields, people feel that they, uh, that's for somebody else to do. That's for somebody in the humanities to do or, or business or, or, or one of those areas that deals with people, you know. It's, but but, but it, it can't be mathematized in the same way. And uh, they do great work and we value it, but it's not really the same kind of research that we value. And I think that that kind of stereotype really has to be uh, confronted for what it is.
So uh, I, I, as someone who you know, has a background in both psychology and computer science, I, I find myself sometimes very much straddling the boundaries between not just two fields, but two, two outlooks on, uh, on life about what, uh, what um, understanding and progress and, and uh, academic value really is. And it's fascinating for me. And I think uh, it's been a privilege to have a career that accidentally did do that straddling because it's something that I think many scholars could really, really benefit from. And students get it. And those who go on to do PhDs and become professors sometimes don't or forget it by the time they get there. But students do understand that they want to learn things which are useful and meaningful, not necessarily things that will uh, get them into a club. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to the next question I wanted to pose because, you know, when we look at our institution, knowledge is divided and, and reified through departments and colleges into various domains that often, as you're implying, you know, don't speak to each other, or don't integrate in ways that might be meaningful to students and everyone else for that matter. And I'm thinking here about, you know, the, the classic divisions of natural science from social science, from humanities and the arts, and also all the professions and, and their important role at institutions. How can we think about our unit research university in, in, in those ways? And, and maybe throw in here, this might be the time to introduce the notion of interdisciplinarity. And you were just touching on, you know, being in two different fields uh, and, and what that can mean for a person or for knowledge production. And maybe even the idea of transdisciplinary disciplinarity, where we try to move beyond discipline itself in, a, in its sort of deeper meaning of a fairly rigid, boundary-driven method of inquiry. Yeah, it's, it's, disciplines are important. I don't want to give you the impression that they're, they're not important. Uh, you know, the, there's a notion of you know, established quality that you get from that, but they do have to, I, I, I actually think it's more important to think about problem-focused issues than interdisciplinary issues. You know, sometimes problems don't come in neat disciplinary packages. And one of the interesting things about when I came to Georgia Tech, I, I somewhat took this for granted because I had, I had worked in a research lab for several years, MCC in Austin, Texas, which was very interdisciplinary in exactly the way that Georgia Tech was becoming at the time in the early 90s and has, has definitely become. And uh, so, for example, we have, a, we have a really wonderful College of Liberal Arts, the Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts. We don't have an English department, for example. Uh, we have a school of literature, media, and communication. We don't have a degree program in history or one in sociology. We have one in uh, history and uh, history of society and technology. And we don't have a philosophy department, but we have applied ethicists who work in environmental ethics and medical ethics and areas like that in our School of Public Policy, similarly with political scientists working on international affairs in international affairs. And so everything is really geared around sort of problems or clusters of, 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 of issues. And, and that's been able, I think what we've been able to do is to cut through the kind of stuffiness that might emerge if, you know, well, that's not really history, that's sociology or vice versa. You're a sociologist, you can relate to this, of course, can't you? So that, that's actually, I think, been, been quite, we've been quite fortunate in that sense. That's allowed things to develop that are a little bit 
unusual. So we have a you know a program in computational media, which is a joint program between our College of Computing and Literature, Media and Communication. And the, uh, it's not just a collection of courses from the two schools. The idea is that students weave together their degree from two threads and those threads actually have emphases. It might be, you know, intelligent systems on the one hand and and the structure of narrative on the other. And then they can become perhaps a, you know, a, a game designer, but they haven't just studied games. They've studied the foundational ideas about what does it mean to interact with people and have to make, you know, do machine learning and those, these kinds of things and graphics. And at the same time, what does it really mean to make a good story? And by, by, by studying some theory in this area. So th there is some of that, I think, that uh, really leads to uh, you know, the fact that we, when, we, when we study, when our students study uh, great works of literature, I mean, we have faculty who just want to teach them with great works of literature. I mean, Shakespeare is something that everybody should, I think, really grow to love. But there's a surprising connection with you know, science and technology and so many things. I mean, most great Victorian fiction was really, in one way or another, about the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with things like social networks and fake news and so on today. And the, the great works of literature about that haven't yet been written. But we can learn a lot, I think, from the works about the coming of the railroads and the factories. Because it's very much the same, same idea that social displacement and those kinds of things follow in their train. So I don't know if that really gets at the, what you're, you're getting at, but I think the, the, the idea that scholarship... Our, our degree programs and what students learn and how they relate ideas together should really be encouraged by the way we organize ourselves academically because students don't care about academic departments you know they they care about they care about the courses they have to take and why they're taking them and and what the relationship is between them and and what comes next and and so i think the extent to which we can provide something which is coherent and not just a collection of discrete courses, really comes from the fact that we organize ourselves in that kind of fashion, so. Yeah, that's what I hear you saying, is that discipline remains important, but problems are more important, and the in-between, the academic organization, ought to be creatively construed to allow for, you know, the most productive problem-focused education. And if mm -hmm. listeners are thinking, oh, well, that's Georgia Tech. They're lucky, you know, they're already set up that way. I would just point out, and you know very well, listeners to the Reinvention Collaborative know very well that Michael Crow at Arizona State yeah. went through a whole process there of refashioning that middle part, the academic organization. Someone had to do that at Georgia Tech at some point in its history and development. These things can be done. Obviously, they're not easy, but they, they are done and people are talking about doing them. Yeah, we were just, I mean, just one thing that we've really just done very recently in the last two weeks, uh, or it's been in the, in the making for over a year, we, we've created a new, well, George said we have schools, we, that's what we call our departments. So we have a new department, essentially, which doesn't belong to a college. It's actually a sort of free-floating school. <laughs> it's a real experiment for us in the area of cybersecurity. And it's very much mm. a collaboration of the College of Computing, the School of Public Policy, and others, but it's not, it's not just an overlap between those that has, you know, that half belongs in one college and half belongs in another college. It's, it's a new kind of entity. We may actually see some more of these in the future. We've got a school of music, but we don't have a conservatory. The emphasis is on digital music, music technology. And we have a, an international musical instrument 
uh, competition, which is fantastic. Every uh, year, the, the, the Guffman competition. And the, uh, the, some, of the, some of the instruments which are displayed there and, and are what you might imagine, you know, kind of 21st century synthesizers. Others might be these Rube Goldberg mechanical devices that don't look like musical instruments, but really relate mechanical engineering and woodworking and other fields to, to, to new, new modes of musical production and artistry. And it's just really great to, to see things like that, I think. So by virtue of your administrative role, you're perhaps uniquely positioned, or you and the provost and a few others, to imagine truly practical university-wide reform efforts. What kinds of concrete changes and what sort of sticks and carrots to drive those changes can you imagine at Georgia Tech, and by extension, at any such resourceful research university? I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at the use of sticks and carrots yeah, I, and in my case, it's generally kind of cajoling and gentle persuasion. I think uh, the uh, our big problems are actually we, we 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 could teach science and technology certainly better than we do. You know, we, we we have students who come to college who are equipped to succeed in the field, and and they hit hurdles, and it's it's rather mystifying. That's something that we're working on. I think it's really important. So we have sort of some statewide networks with other universities where we're working with the John Gardner organization on some improvements for our gateway courses. But I really think the important area of improvement is actually not course by course and it's not pedagogical at all. It's, it's in terms of curricular design and coherence. And, you know, does the curriculum make sense? Where are the bottlenecks? Why, you know, why are students spinning their wheels? Why are some students having midlife crises at 22 saying, you know, my God, I'm in the wrong major. Why didn't they learn that earlier on? Why aren't we sort of advising students to explore? I mean, there's all sorts of questions like this. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that, that we're doing with the Reinvention Collaborative is the work that a colleague of mine at Georgia Tech, Shawi Abdullah, is doing in conjunction with Greg Heilman and many people in the RC know from the University of Arizona on uh, curricular analytics and really just looking at the efficiency of the curriculum. And I, I don't see this as a way of kind of thinking of the curriculum as, a, uh, as like a sort of machine that we're pushing students through uh, with minimal friction. I mean, there's an element of that, but so much as a way of shining a light on where in the curriculum are the points where students are not meeting with the success that they should have been prepared for. And or are starting to lose track of the meaning of what they're doing. And you know, where, where, how could we optimize and redesign the curriculum so that students could actually explore more, perhaps do more of these sorts of electives and minors, rather than forcing them into a very linear, this course follows on from that course, which follows on from that course sort of mentality. So that's one thing I think that we can do as administrators, I have two jobs I've discovered. Uh, it took me several years to really realize this. One, one, one is that I, you know, I, all, I manage a, a unit, like most administrators do, to provide, in this, my case, to provide academic services of various kinds. And Liz mentioned some of them at the very beginning. But I, I also have another job as an ambassador. And, you know, we're working with school chairs and faculty. And in that area, no one no one has to listen to me or do what I tell them to do. I mean, they just don't. 
actually, I don't think, I think basically the president is probably in the same position because, you know, it's the world <laughs> of the universities. We're all sort of independent <laughs> players. But, but, but that side of the, actually, I really enjoy that side of the work. I think it brings me into, I'm a naturally curious person and it brings me into other people's academic areas and how they construe things. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, my job is just to make things as smooth as possible for them and not to put up administrative roadblocks but I do always ask questions for example in any new curricular proposal why are we introducing prerequisites and not removing them you know I think that we're very good at putting things in place in academia it's not a Georgia Tech thing this is a everywhere thing we design new courses we design new programs we design new sequences we never take them away or sell them and when we do, we regard it as a form of failure. Well, that didn't work. And, and yet, as scientists and technologists, and because I'm surrounded by such people at Georgia Tech, that's what I'm thinking of, we like to do experiments, and we don't quite know where they're going to end. So there's no shame in discovering that, that, that something isn't as popular or as efficient or successful as we thought it would be. It's a learning experiment. The shame is actually not doing anything about it. Because in, when we have limited resources, it's really not appropriate, I think, to keep pushing something that, is a, is a pet project that isn't benefiting other people. So that's, the, that's one of the things that I think faculty originating administrators should, should really always con concentrate very much on because we have, I think, the, the conscience and the background and the understanding to ask those kinds of questions. And they're not business questions, they're, they're questions about meaning and value. Perhaps that's what business truly is actually, but that, that's why I think being in a position, having a sort of, overarching view of the institution is so exciting and allows you to do so much because you can ask those kinds of questions and seek answers for them. Uh, one of the things that I think that we also do as um, administrators is that we don't administer, we kind of lead and cajole and, 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 and pull things along. I mean, there is some paper pushing as well. I hate that aspect of the work. That's what people normally think of when they hear the word administration. But it's also helping to design new programs and forging relationships between things. It, it, this, is, this to me is what, what things are about. And in this, over the summer with, with COVID, uh, that's really um, been very important because we've had to react to an ongoing situation but we've also been, I think, on the fly designing a kind of a new view of the university, which is going to be some of the best aspects of it. And I hope none of the worst aspects we will see about that will be preserved afterwards when life gets back to not where it was in 2019, but whatever the new normal is. And I think we'll be judged by the quality of the education we can provide and how we've learned from what we've had to go through the last few months and will continue for the next few. So that's something that I think it, it's very difficult for individual faculty members to do, but collectively they can contribute to. And so one of my jobs is to help that process happen. Yeah, I think your description of the leadership role deserves an amen. That, that was wonderful to hear. And you mentioned COVID. Now we do want to acknowledge that we're having this discussion in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. And, you know, I was on a, I was giving a talk at a conference at an Australian university just recently, which is one of the strange benefits of this situation we're in, where there's more opportunities to connect with our colleagues around the world who are having virtual online uh, style 
gatherings, uh, and it's easy, much easier to to invite people from far distances to to join and learn. And during that process, I was one of the leaders of this uh, university. He really thought that we were being forced into a paradigm shift. His words. And that's something you know. You don't. We don't talk about paradigm shifts as much as we used to uh, in the 70s and 80s, perhaps. But I wondered what I know. You thought a lot about that, and I wondered if this idea, this that you were just bringing up, that, that that we're living through a crisis where we have to rethink our paradigm in higher education, is that a useful idea for you? Do you think we ought to continue to explore to revive that discourse from a bit of an earlier epoch? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole idea of a kind of fundamental shift in our thinking, which I guess is what you know what a paradigm means in this in this sense, it may be necessary. That you know, there's a there's an, a there's a seductive attraction, I think, about this talk of paradigm shifts. I mean, you're talking about a university leader here. I'm sure he had read Thomas Kuhn, but many people talk about this, you know, and it's filtered through Malcolm Gladwell or something, and and. <laughs> The, the, the um, you know, the idea that there's a wow factor. We have to we have to disrupt things. There's a certain there's a certain kind of almost destructive glee behind talk of that kind, which I've always found highly suspicious. And it's it's it tends to be promoted, I think, by a kind of Silicon Valley mindset, whether it's actually coming from businesses that are colonizing higher education, or whether it's coming from insiders who have been you know, infected by this, this, this way of thinking. There's a lot of value. I mean, I'm talking earlier about how important entrepreneurship is at Georgia Tech. You know, we, we really value innovative thinking and we encourage students to form their own companies. And so, I mean, we're certainly not traditionalists, but I do wonder about this, this kind of talk about disruption and paradigm shifts about whether it's really um, actually is based on what's going on or whether it's a form of rather um, strange projected wishful thinking we, 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 we clearly we've had to do things very differently this summer and fall than we did previously we've been forced into something and, and I think we're learning from it and and I've been really amazed and impressed by how incredibly productive it's been our students are kind of getting a little bit stressed out now I think this is true everywhere they're not having the human contact that they thought they would value in college life is particularly those who've just come to college for the first time. The whole college experience, I think, is much more than what goes on in the classroom. And we have to think about that too. But, you know, we, we're all, I think, sick and tired of looking at little kind of celebrity squares, sort of miniaturized pictures of our colleagues in their studies and bedrooms, you know, talking to us in conference calls. And students get the same thing, I think, in their classes. But the best of what we're learning, I think, is how we can do hybrid classes in an effective way and what hybrid doesn't mean. And hybrid doesn't mean, I don't think it means dividing a class into two, half of the students staying at home, half of the students being in class and the faculty member having to divide their attention to these small thumbnail descriptions on the screen and the pe real people in front of them sitting six feet apart from each other. You get the worst of both worlds in that kind of situation. But I think ways of managing class discussions so that blowhards don't totally dominate the discussion, which can be done much more effectively using technological mediation, various kinds of turn-taking algorithms. Really, little things can make a huge difference.
that's a far cry, I think, from the kind of paradigm shift that, that some people were talking about, certainly in the early part of the decade, where the small upstart organizations would basically become the new great universities and the middle tier of universities would go out of business, just like happens in you know, high technology industries. I don't see much sign of that happening, but I do see a sign of lots of smaller universities really suffering with enrollment crises. Most of the members of the Reinvention Collaborative, I think, are medium to large sized universities. They're research universities. Uh, many of them are state universities. And I think they'll survive and many of them will flourish because there's a social need for what they do. But I do fear for the smaller, smaller institutions that really depend on several hundred new students every year and they depend on international students. Right. This is becoming very difficult for them. So is there anything that we've missed that you want to talk about today? Well, I wanted to mention that I said that entrepreneurship is very important. One of the things I think that research universities do, and the RC is really about research universities. What we do is research and we teach. And I think one of the things that students can experience at research universities is that it's they can experience at other universities too, but it's less institutionalized is they can participate in the growth and the creation of knowledge, not just the transmission of it from experts to them. And I don't mean by this just undergraduate research of a traditional notion, notion where, where, where a student works with a faculty member in their lab or whatever, and you know, maybe they clean the test tubes the first semester and then they write a review paper the second semester. You know, it, and this is worthy and it's great, but, but the single investigator model in many disciplines, you know, including the social sciences, maybe not the humanities, but, but, but certainly in science and engineering and computer science and, and social sciences, is really breaking down and we're looking at multi-tiered teams, multi-institutional teams in many cases, conducting research. And what students understand by research, I mean, they just really mean learning by investigation and discovery. Whether it leads to a peer-reviewed publication or a patent or an experience that they can put in their e-portfolio because it was creative, doesn't really matter to them. To them, it's all research or it's all something that, you know, we, we could invent a name for, we could call it innovation or entrepreneurship or whatever. Um, and entrepreneurship isn't just about starting your own company. It's also about thinking outside the box, designing new ways to do things. And students love to do this kind of stuff. And at tech, you know, we have science, we have students who are good at science. They come to high school, they come to Georgia Tech. Many of them want to study engineering, some want to study business or the liberal arts but they all have a background in science what they don't have a background in ironically is the scientific method so they don't see science many of them as a mode of discovery they see it as a really interesting field of knowledge they don't look at innovation and entrepreneurship in that way they understand that those are processes of discovering and inventing and doing things and so I think that what we can do as research universities is at the undergraduate level we can break down the barrier between traditional research and the kind of faculty do to get promotion and tenure and innovation and entrepreneurship and creative work in, in the arts and view them all as a similar kind of loosely coupled set of things 
where students can basically work in larger teams in many cases. So we have an approach called vertically integrated projects, which are uh, involve undergraduates working with graduate students and faculty in teams of anything between five and about 20 people. We've got 80 plus of them at the moment. They, they count for academic credit. They might count for undergraduate research or special topics or whatever, but we, we, we launder the credit legally in all kinds of ways to, to <laughs> contribute to their degrees. Students work on these generally for more than one semester, sometimes for as long as two years, you know, weaving in and out of the project. And those projects go on for longer than the students' involvement in them. So they're a little bit like sort of being involved in a startup. We have a program called CreateX, which is for students who do want to start a startup. And it's a three course sequence, but students can hop in and out wherever they like. And they get support and mentorship about what does it really mean to create something that other people want, not just what they think is a cool idea. And that can come as a very valuable dose of cold water that really helps them you know, understand that sometimes the best ideas aren't the ones that really catch on. And we also have an extremely large program, which is now over 100 courses and, you know, several thousand students are going through this every year called Serve, Learn, Sustain, which is our community engagement project. And some of these, some of these projects are, are VIP projects. Some of them are course oriented, but their students are basically applying their knowledge that they're gathering in their studies in service of the community. So I like to think of this as, by analogy, the difference between an internship or a co-op on the one hand and a summer job is that what you're doing is related to your academic study. You're doing something that somebody who wasn't, let's say, for example, a civil engineer couldn't do. Right? You're not, you might be working as a barista if you're a business student understanding supply chains in the coffee industry and HR issues in, in the service industry, those kinds of things, but you're not doing it just to make money as, as a summer job. That's the difference between an internship and a summer job. The difference between volunteering at the weekend in a worthy cause, which is a fantastic thing to do, and serve, learn, sustain is similar because let's say you're a civil engineer, you can help with maybe the irrigation of a, a playground that kids can't play in in some area of Atlanta that hasn't had the same public investment of funds that others have and other people can dig ditches they can they can volunteer their time but they don't know where to put them right only you as an expert can actually apply that knowledge and this is the kind of thing that we want students to see that what they're doing what they're learning can actually benefit other people and it doesn't have to necessarily be the highest technology intervention it's the one that works and the one that really benefits people and, and the, that's really I think what helps to grow a sense of professionalism and pride in our students so that's uh, all of these areas I think are stealth academics they don't appear as academic as they are but they all involve the application of sometimes quite rigorous academic knowledge in the service of others well, you know, which is to say, it's not always just about calculus. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, that helps. So uh, I'm so told. We, yeah, <laughs> it's still required. It's still required uh, of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we have come to the end of our time, Dr. Potts, and Liz and I both thank you very much for imparting this perspective from Georgia Tech, but which is clearly relevant to all our colleagues 
and anyone interested in the research university here in the United States and what may be possible as we you know, work through our current period and look ahead to continuing the process of innovation change on behalf of our students and our institutions. So we thank you. Thank you. No, it's been wonderful. It's great. Thanks. Thanks, Colin. And thanks to our listeners for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. Reinventing You is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative, all one word, dot org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of our site.